Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Stephen McGregor. He's an author of not one, not two, but three books, uh, Sustaining Executive Performance, Chief Wellbeing Officer and The Daily Reset. And it's the middle one there, Chief uh, Wellbeing Officer is the one that I've read. Um, so we'll take a dive into that, but I'm sure we'll touch on his other works. He's a professor. He's living in Barcelona. Stephen, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. Pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And we should also give a mention to Kivan Kian, who set this up, who's uh, who's a twice appearing uh, guest on on the podcast. So uh, thank you to him. So, uh, well, let's go to how is your well-being today, Stephen? Yeah, it's good. You know, I've had that question so many times over the years, Richard, as if I'm the kind of well-being police, right? You know, people see me on a program or in an organization and they're going into the elevator or they're having a beer and then they see me and they think, oh, no, put the beer down or, you know, take the stairs. I'm like, hey, you know, you know, whatever, any bad habits that you've had in your life, I've had them and then, and then some. But I think the key thing to mention, Richard, is that and, and I, I talk about this in, in, in the latest book, is that well-being is a journey. And just because I've been working in the field for so long, it, it doesn't mean that I've got the answers or that I cross the finish line. It's always in play. And I'm making mistakes every day. But the key thing is that I'm experimenting and I have it top of mind. So as we just talked about prior to recording, uh, it's a holiday here today in Barcelona. So I've been playing with my son. And yeah, that, that's good enough for me in terms of my own well-being. Yeah, well, great. And uh, what better place to play football than uh, <laughs> in Barcelona? I'm guessing even in February, it's still uh, pretty pleasant with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you should mention that because just before we were chatting, before we came on, I felt like I was sort of speaking to the well-being monitor and I was rattling through all the good things I'd done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like desperate for your well-being approval. That's, that's quite funny. Yeah, no, I can imagine you end up in that position. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, even my kind of upbringing, and, and, and again, this is in many ways where it came from. So I, I grew up in the, in the 1980s in the west of Scotland, and, you know, I, I was, uh, it, it was a tricky time in terms of even the politics and the industry at the time. So it was, it was a rapid kind of um, process of deindustrialization of, of all Britain, and, and especially in the west of Scotland and near Glasgow, where I was brought up. So I saw a lot of primarily men losing their purpose and, and, and their well-being going in the opposite direction. And, and even at home, you know, my father included, you know, being unemployed for, for a number of years, just in that very tricky period of changing industries and sectors where I was brought up. So I saw a lot of the importance of work for well-being in terms of purpose or, or lack of purpose, and also a lot of bad habits, right? I was surrounded with a lot of bad habits you know, growing up. And, uh, and I think that then, even though I didn't know it at the time, and I wasn't able to kind of verbalize that, looking at it much, much later, it really shaped a lot of my view in terms of just taking a very pragmatic approach to one's own health and well-being, but recognizing that it's choice, it's habits, and you can drill into the daily basis on, on changing those habits. But, you know, your work environment is hugely important as well. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the yeah, it's the place we spend so much of our time and it, it it's, spills out into all areas of life. Everything's connected to everything else. Yeah, it makes sense. So that's interesting. You, you mentioned, you know, upbringing surrounded by a lot of bad habits. Did you, did you inherit some of those habits and then kind of have a moment or, or a transition out of them? Like what was you, was there a journey for you towards well-being or were you just generally always a pretty kind of well kid? Yeah, I was lucky. I, I kind of, I fell into athletics. So if anyone has been familiar with my work over the years, I, I write a lot about my own experience in, in sport. And as a young kid, right, just running a race at high school in first or second years, so I would have been 12, 13 years old. And then that got me into the local running club and that gave me a purpose. And, and even working with grassroots coaches who do such a, an amazing job it gave me that positive kind of way of, 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 of using my energy, right? And, and if you look at a lot of kids growing up, if they don't have that outlet, then it can go in the wrong direction. And even my wife as well, and I talked about this in an article that I wrote at the weekend, you know, she grew up from an early age, she was dance training. And so this discipline and that rigor 
of of training on a, on a systematic basis. It, it stayed with me my whole life. Um, but then you know you go through the teenage years and you meander around about some other bad habits. Um, and you know I had a good time. I had a good time at university. I had a fantastic university in Glasgow. Enjoyed student life to the full. Um, but then I think the next turning point for me was when I was a visiting researcher at Stanford in 2001. And I was training with a track team. And, and these guys were also in the Olympic Games. I was just blown away. You know, I, I was coming from university when it was a kind of, yeah, you had a good time and you, you studied and you worked hard, but you had a party as well. And I went to Stanford and it was like, yeah, maybe it's a little bit serious also. And I don't know if mm. I would like that all of the time. But I was so hugely impressed by that pursuit of excellence, not just in academics, but in every single part of your life. But the biggest thing for me in that experience, I was a visiting researcher for several months in the US and I toured around. My own well-being was just soaring. And my peers had left after the first degree to go into the world of work. They were being squeezed. They were making good money compared to me. I was a student still, but they seemed to be quite unhappy. And I was living my best life. So I thought there must be a better way. So I started putting all of these kind of previous experiences together. And I thought, how can we bring well-being up the agenda within the workplace and take it a bit more seriously? Because if you invest in your health and well-being, and I got this from my athletics experience at the time, you will absolutely improve your performance. And so everyone's happy. So I think that was the kind of some of the, some of the workings and some of the movements that led to where I am now. Right, right. I get it. And interesting. So, so your well-being is soaring at Stanford, presumably v compared to, to being in Glasgow. Like, what were the what were the main differences? Would you say in your life at Stanford and, and touring the US versus uh, Glasgow? So, you know, I think environment is hugely important. And even coming back to my upbringing and 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 you know who you're surrounded by, who you're inspired by, uh, your physical environment, and even nowadays a lot of the work that we do in behaviour change, we dig into the physical environment. And absolutely in a virtual world, that is very important. Um, look, weather is important. You know, I, I came to Spain 20 years ago to try and get, to try and get some more sunshine. You know, part of, part of that move was, was absolutely that, right? So, but I, you know, I don't know if I'd make a comparison between just being in Palo Alto and being in Glasgow. The comparison I think that is more important was me being in that position of being a visiting researcher and my peers being in the world of work. And I think the big thing, okay, that the big the thing for me was that I had time to think. And, and, and I just felt that people, when they go into the world of work, and especially when they are a young graduate, they are squeezed, right? They are, you know, used, for want of a better word, for, for everything. The energy that they have at that age, um, which is we know energy, we need to manage it a little bit better as, as we age, of course. So I think that was the comparison for me. I had time to think. And if you have time to think, you have time to think about your mental health, you have time to think about your performance, you have time to think about your own well-being, time to breathe on a simple level. Uh, and that's not always the case when we rush into the world of work. So I think that was the key differentiator for me. And that is so true, isn't it? And I think it's got a lot worse for people in the kind of Zoom culture or, you know, team school culture where your, you know, your diary is even more, you know, back you know, more, more crowded and you don't have those natural breaks between meetings when you had to physically get from say one side of the building to the other or across town. Um, so that time to think seems to have been squeezed more than ever over the last couple of years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, some of the things that, that we talk about in programs is in some of the sessions is we ask people, you know, what, how do you spend your time? You know, everyone's saying I'm so busy. I'm working so many hours in a day, so many hours in a week. And, and we get them to break it down. And you say, okay, what, what do you do? What, what do you get paid for, right? And, and the things that come out often at the beginning, and they're easier to measure, of course, is the amount of emails and the amount of meetings and the amount of phone calls and client contacts. And then we say, well, you know, how much time do you spend thinking? And it kind of makes them scratch their head a little bit, right? And of course, they think when they do these other things, but, you know, dedicated thinking. And then we have a follow-up question. We say, well, where do you do your best thinking? And they think, yeah, you know, you know, they say in the shower or exercising. And it's often these things when maybe we are thinking about our well-being and some of the ideas come out, the best ideas and the more creativity comes out at that time as well. 
It's often not when we are back to back in virtual meetings or when we are really on the limit. You know, that's part of the equation. Maybe you, 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 you kind of, you know, you, you, you fill your head with some of the ideas, or at least the pain points. You experience those pain points if we think about even design thinking methodology. And then when you have the space, whether that be just going for a walk with a dog or exercising or going to the gym or in the shower, that's when the ideas come out. And I think it's the oscillation that we need. If we had too much rest, Richard, we wouldn't get much done either, right? But we need, we need to be on. We need to work hard, absolutely. But then we need to step back and we need to bear the fruits of that hard work as well. So the oscillation is key. Right, right. And you talk about that in, in the Chief Wellbeing Officer book, the triple eight. Uh, so it was a Scottish, right? There's a Scottish example of, a, a, of, of, of um, an industrial leader who'd set this up for his workers, right? Can yeah, you talk so about that? You know, going back, absolutely. I mean, it's actually a Welshman. It was Robert Owen. Welsh, the, sorry. No, yeah, So, But you're right. It was in the New Lanark Mills. So in, in central Scotland, um, th- this was the kind of one of the key movements in, in the Industrial Revolution, or at least advancing the Industrial Revolution as something that wasn't just treating uh, workers like machines, which is the way that it started. And even, um, you know, children were taken out of school to satisfy the need for resource to, to work these machines. So the cotton mills of, of New Lanark, which today is a World Heritage um, site, um, was, was transformed through the worker Robert Owen, who originally from Wales, but then he, 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 he transformed these mills and he looked after people essentially, right? So he gave them that balance, and he he conceived of this triple eight idea, which was, you know, let let's limit the working day to eight hours, and then think about what we are doing in the rest of our days. It isn't just the every moment that we're awake that we should be working, and then that's going to be diminishing returns. So at that time, it became a very um, uh, he became a celebrity at that time, and 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 you know, statesmen and 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 and, and royals from all over Europe came to see the mills and they were surprised at not only seeing uh, a successful business, but a very clean environment, which was very strange for that time. Industrial Revolution was characterized by being very dirty um, and also a happy workforce. And so from that, um, uh, companies in the US, most notably Ford Motor Company, took on this idea of actually limiting the amount of time that workers were working in a day and they saw their profits uh, increasing as well. So a very early case, let's say, of well-being at work, right? And yeah. um, and the triple eight was eight hours work, eight hours rest. Sorry, eight hours sleep and eight hours like play or recreation. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we could all do with that today. We're still not there, right? So that's isn't it know. amazing, right? That this was an idea, you know, that we're still not there. Absolutely. Well, of course, there are those who have gone even further, right? Like even my brother's firm, and he works for you know global. You know, advertising firm, and they give all of their staff four day weeks for most of the summer. So I think, I think, I think, whilst in general the world isn't there, it's also interesting that some, at least some firms, have gone even further than that. Right? They, they're yeah. going away from five days a week even to. As you know, it's the kind of the, 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 you know even in Owen's day and 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 in that industrial revolution, it was always in a very serial fashion, mm. and even up until pretty recently, you left the office. And you kind of finished work, but then technology changed all that. So even if you were trying to look for balance, whatever that means, then you're in and out of these worlds on a constant basis. You know, so 24 hours a day, if you're looking for these three elements, they're always in play. Whereas in the past, it was, okay, you did the eight, and then you have maybe your eight-hour window of of leisure. And then, of course, you have your eight-hour window of rest or sleep. But now we need to think about this in a much more fluid manner and even napping at work, if, if that's feasible. If you have a long day, you know, why shouldn't you have a nap in the middle of the day? If you're up early and you're going to be working at night, absolutely, right? And, and some companies, even with hard business cultures, are, are facilitating that. They're, they're giving permission for the workers to do that. So it's not easy, right? It's a very fluid thing. But it's, so it could be a four-day week, as you mentioned, and other companies that I've seen as They've even said it's a seven-day week. They're saying, okay, you know, recognizing that the work doesn't really stop, but you give the flexibility in every single day of the week. Um, so, you know, where are we going, right? It's an interesting one. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. And I love the vignette in the book, the, the Chief Wellbeing Officer book, of uh, the, I think the, the mum, like, crouching behind like a bush trying to get, did, 
you know, do her emails while she's, you know, playing with the kids in the park. Like that, I think, and that, that resonated with me, right? You know, we've got this, this new challenge is, you know, basically we can work whenever. And so a lot of this must come down to personal discipline as well as, you know, company policy. I mean, even when you mentioned that, um, as I, I'd said at the beginning, it's a holiday here in Barcelona, um, which is kind of a unique holiday. No one else seems to be on holiday. That's one of the, that's one of the reasons I came here to live also, Richard, just because I knew Spain had a ton of holidays that we could get during the, during the But no. Um, so I'm playing football with my son and the phone, you know, the phone rings because, you know, I had the phone with me just to check time primarily, but it's a work request. So what do you do? Do you pick up when I'm playing football or do I just, you know, let it go? Um, so you have those choices. And I think it depends on the context, but managing expectations is, is hugely important as well. And even culturally over the years, getting used to, you know, working with a lot of clients in the Middle East and recognizing that, yeah, their weekend starts on a Friday. And so that, you know, beginning with clients, that was often a kind of, you know, when they start on a Sunday and now that's kind of been normalized, at least in Dubai, they've decided to then bring that in line with kind of global markets as well. So it's going to be more Monday to Friday. But I think it's the managing expectations that is, is, is the key thing. Um, it's not easy because work is always there. But the key takeaway, I think, is this. If work is always there, then well-being should always be there as well. Because mm. we would often... Um, accept work requests in, in recent years work requests coming into traditional time that reserved that was reserved for family time or for rest but the opposite didn't take place you didn't allow even on a personal level never mind your superiors or the work environment they didn't allow uh, rest or other things that we need in our life to come into the primary time that was reserved for work so if work is always in play then by extension, I think well-being and our own lives should always be in play as well. And I think that's a key thing that we need to remember. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Yeah, I'd not, I'd not considered it in those terms. But yeah, that's a very powerful idea that companies need to accept that, yeah, that people should be looking after their well-being um, at, at all times. Right, or at least not maybe not at all times, but at least there needs to be the possibility for that to be taken care of, right? Not jury, as you say, reserved hours. And even just, and it just reminds me of, of, of a conversation I had recently with 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 someone who's who'd bought, boss at bristled at the idea that she was going to take her car in to get serviced and was going to be like an hour in late for work and. And he's, he's like, well, why don't you do that at the weekend or do that in the evenings? Why are you letting that encroach into the, like, the working day? And yet I'm sure the very same get boss would be quite uh, comfortable with her opening an email or doing a presentation during the weekend, right? You're, you're, there's a double standard here. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, I can really yeah, can see how that's something that, that needs to shift. Um, but but also this this discipline, you know, is there anything you can say about that? Because I had a friend once, you know, we're not touched so much anymore, but he was a partner at McKinsey. And I asked him and I said to him, you know, um, that must have been so intense, right? Like, you know, you, you must have been working crazy hours to maintain that position as a you know, partner of a global consulting firm. And he's like, no, I pretty much always did nine to five. And I was staggered by that. I was like, how is it you get to that position? And you maintain that level of you know discipline around your your work life balance, and there must have been something you know in him that was able to. And, and actually, I saw it in another partner, a different firm who'd, who'd done something similar. Have you you know experienced anything in terms of how people you know do maintain a discipline around this and keep the separation, and what is, what what works for people? Yeah, you know, I think people or high performers recognise that. Off is just as important as being on. So if, if you don't invest in recovery, and you can see this clearly in sport, but it absolutely is the case in business. If you don't invest in recovery or time off, the on that you're doing will become much, much less efficient. And, and, and I think over time, 
people realise that. And, and it's coming back to a previous point, especially as we age, you know, we gain an experience, but we need to be more careful with our energy. We need to manage energy in a, in a much more smart fashion. Um, and I think it's a, it's a subtle change, but it makes a whole amount of difference to how we perform. A quote that I often use in, in some of my work is from Claude Debussy, the composer, and he said, music is the space between the notes. Mm. And often when we are starting out in business, we are just always on. It's just like, bam, 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 bam. And we think that's the way that we're going to advance. And often you kind of maybe need to show that, that, that work ethic and that ambition. Um, but I think often stepping back is the key thing as well. So maybe there's an element of that in it, that they recognize that being a high performer is about, you know, investing in recovery or else they're not going to last very long. They're going to burn out. And I'm sure for any partner in a senior firm or any senior um, high performer that has that discipline or has that kind of daily reality, there'll be others as well that, that, that maybe don't, right? And, 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 and that's why we need to have the work that, that we both do to, to work with organizations, to try and change the culture, um, to try and change not only the health and well-being of people, but the way that they're building the cultures around them, because they will role model what the next generation is doing as they come in. A final point on discipline, I think, is that, and, and we've looked a lot of this in terms of the work that we do in habits, is that you can automate behaviors and the discipline, it comes, right? So it's not always the fact that you need to consciously invest and, and, and have the power of will, but you can actually build uh, structures around you or triggers. And that could be the physical environment. It could just be a routine that you're, you're used to doing um, and recognizing your own patterns that, that puts less emphasis on the need for the power of discipline or will. And it just, it rolls as a system. So you, you, you construct that system. You'll be very um, intentional about it. But once you put it into play, it actually runs quite well. And, and there's a lot of things that you can do in that, in that respect, I think. Yeah, and on that note, there's a quote I love in, in the book. You will never change. This is from John C. Maxwell. You will never change your life until you change something you do daily. Yeah, yeah. Right. I absolutely. mean, such a simple statement, but I've found that to be absolutely true, right? It, you, you build a life on habits, basically. Because, <laughs> I mean, if you think, and, and this is what came, led to my, the new book, The Daily Reset, um, which is just out, was about thinking, how do we guide people to, to invest in that change on a daily basis? Because if you think, and I, I, I was always... I was guilty of this, not guilty, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but the traditional approach to change for us as human beings is that we, we make a substantial effort into something, we give it a real push, but then we kind of leave it there and then we move on to something else. It's, it's usually a big effort every now and then, but if, we, a bit, if we're a bit more intentional about the things that we want to achieve, if you just build it in on a consistent basis, you just need a little tiny push, but as long as you're doing it every day, the cumulative effect is incredible. It's like compound interest. You build on that every single day. Um, so that's the rationale that, that I've believed in for many years. And as I say, it's the rationale that I brought into the new book. Um, and also recognizing that in the same respect that people often just give a big effort now and again, people often don't read books anymore, right? We're all surrounded by messages and, and sound bites and social media. So without necessarily dumbing it down, because I still think there's a lot of rigor in the daily reset, it's about making the bar low. So you're not saying, change your life, read this book, it's going to keep, take you a couple of days and it's going to really sink in over time, but you need to invest several hours into that. With the daily reset, I'm trying to say to people, make your coffee in the morning or when you're just turning up before you turn off the light uh, at night to go to sleep, you need two minutes or three minutes to read the nudge for that day. And that's okay. going to stick with you, but you do it every single day. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. It reminds me of, uh, of the, um, uh, what's it? I can't remember. Um, it's a book by, it's a book, it's called The Daily Meditations, and it's a book by, anyway, 
it's 365 meditations from sort of the ancient thinkers, right? Ryan, somebody. Holiday, and, um, right? Yes, Ryan yeah. Holiday, yeah. Yeah, it's the Daily and, um, The Daily Stoic, there you go. 365 like daily passages. And I love that book because it's just, just one paragraph uh, yeah, taken from some, you know, usually a, a sort of Greek philosopher or Marcus Aurelius is in there. And, and, then, and then like a little bit of commentary and that's it. And, and think about that one idea for the day. Um, yeah, I think that, that books designed in that way may be the, the, st- <laughs> the style for our age. So look, yeah, and, and this is what happened to me. So in the first paragraph of the Daily Reset, this is what I talk about. So during the pandemic, when we're all, and even now, everything that is going on, it, you know, it's not the best time in, 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 in human history for mental health. And the Daily Stoic was really valuable for me. So I had had it for a couple of years, um, but I'd always just picked it up now and then. But with everything going on at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I read it more systematically every day with coffee. And I thought, and I'd had an idea for a while, I, I could do the exact same book, but focused on health and well-being. And I, I talk about that in the introduction. So the Daily Reset is, is basically, is the Daily Stoic, but for health and well-being. And instead of just the ancient philosophy exclusively, which of course is very important, it's a lot of the modern research and it's a lot of the modern cases on business that hopefully will, will mobilize us to change and serve as a guide. But again, just investing that a couple of minutes each day and letting that build up step by step. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I think my, my health and well-being really um, improved and my ability to form habits when I kind of got to a point where I could let myself off the hook in terms of it having to be great, right? Like there's this, a job worth doing is a job worth doing badly. Um, yeah, it's, it's something I got from a mentor once. And I think that that released me, right? So, so I don't have to hit the gym for an hour. If I, if I do one press up today, I, like I've done exercise. Or if I meditate for, for three minutes, I, I've meditated, right? And, and I think taking that outlook and then building from there, I just, I think it's just a much, for, for most people, perhaps for all people, is a much, um, is a strategy much likely to deliver on this change in habit, building a daily habit that then changes your life. You know, another element on that, that I think was also an insight for me, was that if you thought about a traditional approach to health and well-being, and it could, you know, be like physical um, training or, or meditation or a yoga class or whatever it may be, it was always something that was kind of separate from the normal flow of life. So you were working, you were with family, you were, you were doing your things, you, you, you know, the responsibilities that we all have each and every day. If you wanted to invest in health and well-being, that was separate. So you go to the gym or, or you'd go somewhere for a run or whatever you do, right? But we should integrate this as well, right? So rather than going somewhere else or making it separate, you know, build it in, right? So, you know, uh, meditation within the workplace or, or, or a walking meeting, combating a sedentary life. Um, and part of that, as you say, is it doesn't have to be a big pocket of time. It could be a, a, a couple of minutes, and that's the key. But also that it's in that normal flow of life. So you're not leaving your normal life to do health and well-being, but health and well-being is part of your normal life. And that, for me, I, I had that kind of realization several years ago, and it made a whole difference. So even now, in terms of training, personally, I've got a whole series of rituals. You can see maybe my coffee machine just behind me. Yeah. So every day I have kettlebells just down here. And so I press for a coffee, it's 20 seconds. So I could just be waiting on the coffee, right? But instead of that, I press the button and in the time that the coffee comes, I, I do kind of 20 kettlebells. So you, you, the cumulative effect of that over the course of a week is that, you know, I'm getting a couple of hundred kettlebell sessions, which could be the equivalent of going to the gym for half an hour. But no, it's integrated within the normal flow of life. I'm not losing anything and anything I'm, I'm gaining. So building this in, it's not always feasible. If you're in the workplace, right, you don't want to be you know, necessarily during a meeting and then you're doing some sort of, you know, you're, you're pushing weights or something, right? But, you know, you, depending on the context, you can always do something, right? A walking meeting with a, a Steve Jobs was a huge advocate of a walking meeting. He felt that he could really get to know someone on that on that walk, right? So there's an orthodoxy of work, which I think we need to challenge. 
integrating health and well-being as part of that is, 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 is part of the puzzle, I think, that gets us to, to doing great work as well, Richard. I love that. Yeah. Challenging that orthodoxy of what's like the expected norms, right? In the workplace, like what's professional and what's, yeah, what should we be doing? I did a walking meeting recently with a group and uh, yeah, they loved it. Um, yeah. Just working in Canary Wharf in the city in London and you know, took, a, took a walk down by the, the, the river and made a huge difference. Um, yeah. And also get what you said, squeezing exercise in. I, I, I was making my kids uh, uh, pancakes the other morning and I, I squeezed in a, like a, a press up set whilst, you know, the pancake was kitty. And of course, cooking and Kate, my partner, came up. She said, what are you doing on the kitchen floor? Wash your, wash your hands off. Do you? So, you know, you've got, to, you've got to create a new orthodoxy, right? I've got to create an orthodoxy in the home, which is like, it's okay to do press-ups while I'm waiting for the pancake to cook. All right, I did some press-ups like waiting for the train in the car park recently and, you know, got, got a look from someone, you know, <laughs> coming by. But I think this is it, right? It's, this is, you know, challenging orthodoxy, societal norms, you know, company norms is, is part of what I suppose this new future looks like. And, and it's mixing it up, right? So it may be that you do these things and for whatever reason, no, you're not going to continue, right? But the key thing is that you, you're experimenting. You know, I think we're, we're all too quick to settle into a pattern of doing. And it's part of this orthodoxy. It's part of what other people will think. But the other thing is, is, is also as we age, we, we tend to do less things for the first time. And we're always just doing the same things, right? And, and it means that we think the same way as well. So even just breaking a pattern of behavior in any way, it just gives you that freshness. There's a huge amount of value from experimentation. And you start to think differently as well. It's, it's, it's hugely valuable. So I think there's a lot of value. You know, I think we need to do things differently. Anything, any change is good. Right. Yeah, I've read that before. Just, um, you know, go for your run, but go for your run like in fancy dress, right? Or, you know, and it just, just, just bringing novelty to your life yeah. is itself an act of enhancing your well-being, right? That's, um, yeah, an interesting, interesting point to, to ponder. Um, now the other, the other, I guess the other question I had, and, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure how the extent to which you'd sort of looked into this in your research was around like company structure as a whole, because one of the questions I had in my mind when I was reading the chief wellbeing o officer was like, well, this is all very well, but it's kind of premised on the idea that we have like an executive class and there's like one member of that executive class who's then responsible for design of the workplace that's going to enhance wellbeing. And I thought, well, that may be like a step in the right direction for certain companies. But also on this podcast, I've, I've interviewed a host of you know, CEOs of companies or leaders of companies where they don't, they've, they've really broken down the structure completely. The, you know, the, the idea of them to have like a, chelf, chelf, a chief wellbeing officer would be an anathema to their culture because they're highly self-organized and, and people are, you know, are grouped into you know, self-organizing teams and they would kind of work out for themselves what, what wellbeing would look like for their team. And, and in, well, certainly in the experience of this podcast, companies that are structured in that way just naturally have much higher levels of, of belonging, of well-being, of gauge, engagement, and so on. And so I just wondered if that had been a factor in, in your research and, and the way you, you look at things. I mean, it's interesting. I always remember this. It was one of the first reactions that we had to the Chief Wellbeing Officer book um, was someone said, this is not a book to guide the creation of a chief wellbeing officer position in a company. And, and my reaction was, well, it was never meant to be, right? So, so for, for me, the rationale behind the chief wellbeing officer title is that you take a word that is wellbeing, which is traditionally soft and not taken that seriously within business, and you put the two most serious terms around the, each side of it. So it was like a polemic, right? And, and if people take that book and they then try and create that position in a company, then, then good luck to them, right? I, and even at the weekend, I, I had another request about someone saying, you know, I want to try and, 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 and move towards a chief wellbeing officer position. So if I can guide them in that, then great. But the book necessarily wasn't about that. It was just about how can we elevate wellbeing as a strategic concern in whichever way that is best within that organization. If that is creating a position in the executive committee, they're great. If it's creating a position within HR, which is not XCOM, great. If it's making it the responsibility of all, then that's great as well. I didn't want to be too prescriptive. But I have had reflections on this 
if you even look at other fields, um, I remember it was a Thomas Davenport quote from, from years ago. I was working during my PhD and looking at knowledge management, and he said something like the, the, the key metric of success for, for knowledge management as a field is that it becomes invisible because it becomes everyone's responsibility. And I also looked at the same um, kind of concept with corporate social responsibility when I was looking at that, right? Um, and it was saying, you know, when everyone feels that they're responsible for kind of ethics or a responsible way of doing business, then you don't have a corporate social responsibility function because everyone is involved. But in order to get there, you often need to give it teeth. You often need to give it visibility. Um, and, and so you maybe you create a business unit or you create a role which is champion, is going to champion that cause. So I think with well-being, if the culture within a business or an organization is such that well-being will flourish without creating someone who's in charge of well-being, then great. I think that would be that ideal, Richard, right? But there could be some organizations, I think, that really do need that visibility. It's just going to be a kind of a lightning rod and it's just going to say, hey, this, we're taking this seriously. So this is a senior level position. They're going to have budget. They're going to have you know, autonomy on, on, on different elements that are going to touch up on even strategy or communication or, 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 or reward within the company. And then that's the way to go. So I think it may depend on organization and absolutely the culture within the organization. Which way do you go? Do you go formalize it or is it for everyone and you just build it up from the grassroots? You know, that's my opinion. I don't know what you think about that, given your other conversations. Well, no, I think that, that, that makes sense. And, and it may be for, the, for certain organizers. And well, first of all, I should say, the material in the book is, is just relevant for anybody who wants to gain a better understanding of well-being, right? And, and I think you, you haven't, like, this isn't a book about how to be a chief well-being officer, right? So that's, that, 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 that's true. I just, yeah, it was just, just the curiosity there was, and it didn't seem to have come out particularly in the book was, like, have you studied certain structures of organization that tend to enhance overall well-being? you know, of, of the employees? Had you found that well, certain think, cultures or, or, or design, organizational designs better or worse? I think that would be a great follow-up book, Richard. You just give me an idea. Um, <laughs> maybe we, we can co-author that. But that, you know, because as I say, you know, an even interview several months ago was what, what is a chief wellbeing officer, right? What profile do they need to have? Where does it sit in the organization? What do they do? Um, you know, uh, I, I, I got the idea from uh, the do the lectures um, in, in one of their reports several years ago. And the quote was, in the future, everyone will have a chief well-being officer. Every organization, they'll look after people. It hasn't quite happened, right? You know, I don't really know many organizations who have that position. Will we have it more in the future? I'm not convinced either, right? You know, you've got um, positions that are head of health and well-being within an organization. You've got other organizations where you have maybe even the CEO who's a huge passion for that, that area. You know, hu human resources is often the place where it sits. As we come out of the pandemic and everything is changing on an organizational level in terms of how we work, um, then I think this might be an interesting period over the next several years to see where would it sit and how would that look in terms of organizational design as well. Um, but, you know, personally, I haven't dug into that in any, in any depth. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a side note in a sense that, yeah, that's certainly been the experience of the, the, those organizations who have gone further down the self-organizing principle. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Frederick Leloux and his work and like the Teal organization, but but those companies who's, who've pushed that lever <laughs> to a greater degree, it, you know, certainly my experience tend to have found, you know, much higher levels of well-being amongst the staff. Um, and it may well be that chief, chief well-being officers come to the same conclusion, right? If they, if, you know, if they study what's going to work and they start experimenting, they may end up in the same place. So, you know, it may, it, as you say, it may be the, the sort of forcing function, um, certainly for those organizations who, well, presumably, and it's only going to be organizations who sense there's a lack of well-being that are going to feel the need for such a position. So, yeah, um, I mean, on that, so I'm not familiar with, with those researchers. Um, it hasn't been a focus area for me the last couple of years. 
Um, but we did work with SAP here in Barcelona, and they were looking at some of these elements of, of autonomy and self-forming teams. And the, the position that they created at the start, it was a pilot um, for the Barcelona operation, um, uh, was a chief happiness officer. But that didn't quite work out for them. They just, you know, and, and I interviewed uh, Toby, Toby Howe, um, on my own podcast, on the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. And, and he said something like, you know, it doesn't mean that I have a red nose and I go around telling jokes all day, right? And with, with that kind of title, there was always that kind of perception of, well, this isn't really business, is it? So they renamed it as, as humanizing business. And, uh, and that's been a very successful pilot in the last couple of years. And it's looked at some of these areas of, of autonomy and belonging and you know, it brings in a lot of these other areas, you know, psychological safety and, um, and they're looking at even recruitment. And, and, and so they're doing a lot of really interesting work within, within that area. And yeah, it's just called humanizing business. There's no label there as such. It's just about how can we make work better? And I think it gets to the experience of work. And it comes back to some things that we've talked about so far in the conversation. Um, you know, work, it doesn't have to be about suffering, right? You know, we, we can work hard and, and we can sweat and we can be uncomfortable in the moment. But I think the experience of work also should be, should be more positive. Ideally, we should have a good time in the workplace, yeah. right? We should feel that belonging. We should make friendships. We should tell stories, right? And, and, and if that happens, then well-being comes from that social aspect as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and I and I, th I think that one of the reasons that these organisations that have gone much further down the self-organising team route is that people do. I think perhaps one of the reasons people experience more well-being is that they they just feel a greater sense of connectedness to their team, to their purpose. They get that it can be a little intimidating because people often have to find their way. There is no structure for them to slit in, slot into. So in the beginning, it can be. A challenge for people, but once they've found their feet, um, that they're able to chart their own destiny in a powerful way, and that can um, obviously enhance their levels of well-being. Which reminds me of the story in the book, actually, um, the Shackleton story. Um, no, not the sh the no the is it the which is the story of the the one guy who dies because he doesn't have a proper role. Yes, um, which yes. is this? This is on an expedition. Yeah, so that is, um, it comes from my co-author, Rory Simpson, who's the Chief Learning Officer at, at Telefonica and, and a good friend of, of many years. And his father um, was, um, he, he, you know, he was a doctor, he was a medical doctor, but he was also an explorer. His, the full family were, were explorers and they would, take their, they would take the kids on these expeditions and they would go to... Um, you know, South America, and they were in the, 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 the Antarctic as well. But he was on an expedition, I think it was Argentina in that one, and they were snowed in. And yeah, it was, it was one man who died because he, in his view, he didn't have a purpose. He, he just, he just kind of went mad. Um, and and he, he was there just as a job. But, but everyone else was there in terms of you know, discovery and, and finding out new things and doing their research. And, and this, it was just the lack of purpose that this person had. And that, that was the key aspect, I think, there. Yeah, I thought that was an extraordinary yeah, story of um, just how important yeah. it is. And I guess and then it, it also reminds me of a man's search for meaning and, you know, that book and how, you know, the, the, the experience um, of being in the concentration camps. And it was those guys who, 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 held on to purpose and meaning who were able to make it through. And um, I think very often in, in corporations, we kind of get stuck in these jobs and we're not really sure what we're here to do and it doesn't quite make sense. And we're not quite sure why the job exists or, you know, there's just, you're just, you're just grinding it out for, um, for eight hours or 10 hours. And that those, and of course, in that situation, it's, it's very hard to, from that place, build well-being, although not impossible, as, you know, presumably you talk about in the daily reset, if you, if you get your habits. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think it comes down to that alignment, right? If you can only find purpose and meaning in life outside of the workplace, then there's going to be a limit to how well you are at work. 
ideally, mm. it, it, it's a luxury, right? But I think we can all try and attain that luxury of just having that alignment that, you know, you find meaning and purpose within the work that you're doing as well. And I think there was cases during the pandemic whereby people went above and beyond in those very difficult first months, especially at work when they saw the impact that it had on, on other people and they could help other people. So especially in, in, in health service and other things like that, right? If they felt that they were serving the greater good in society, even on a, 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 a minor level, that just gave them so much more motivation to, to do the work at a difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember during the pandemic, like the first time in my life, I felt any kind of greater sense of purpose in, in our village because we had a little committee set up to go help um, like the older people in the village to get their shopping and, and stuff, right? I mean, I'd never had a sense of purpose outside of my work. And now I had, a, you know, and my family now had a sense of purpose in the village community. It was a, just something I'd never really experienced in my entire life before. And, you know, yeah. here I was delivering like gift hampers to, you know, the elderly in the village. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that you, came out of the we, pandemic. Yeah. And, and research shows, you know, mental health, um, you improve mental health by helping others. And even the World Happiness Report for 2020, it didn't take that nosedive that maybe everyone would have expected because there was that element of community, cohesion. There was that solidarity because we had all experienced this together. And then we, we came together. And, and I think that helped everyone's you know, happiness, health and well-being over, the, over a very difficult time. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I wonder if we should talk a little bit then about your latest book, The Daily Reset. And as you say, there's the, the, there are these daily nudges. Um, I, guess, I guess, what have you found so far in terms of if you were to pick a few of those habits or, or nudges that seem to have made a real difference for people, what and perhaps listeners to this show could start to consider taking on, which would you pick? So, yeah, it's a tricky one. <laughs> so there's 366. Um, separate nudges, page a day or less. Um, it'll come to me maybe, but I think the key thing also is that there are 12 themes. So for each month of the year, there is a theme that I think is important for well-being. And, and the whole premise was about moving our lives forward. And I just had a, my hypothesis and my own feeling and talking to other um, you know, clients and, 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 and family and friends is that we, we were all in limbo and, and still, we still are to a, to a degree. We, we can't do long-term planning and, and we were kind of stuck. So the book was a page a day accessible guide to try and move us forward. And so there's 12 themes and um, January is, is movement, physical movement. February, we're coming to the end of February now, is habits. And then March is sleep. So depending on where people are, it could be that each theme is very important for them at that time. We've just talked about purpose. August is the month of purpose. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I found that people so far have, have had a, a very specific interest in one theme or the other. I think more than that and more than pinpointing a specific nudge, you know, I can read a couple. I have the book there. I can read a couple if you wish. Is even today's? Um, I don't know what it oh, is. Go on, let's um, read today's. Right. Okay. So what? what go on. I, I don't know when let's you're going to. I'm, I'm open to be nudged. <laughs> right. So it's what is it? It's 28th, right? Yeah. February. I don't know when you're going to put this out. So February, as I said, is habits, and it's the 28th. Well, this is quite actually. This is pretty good. It's called "Find Your Keystone." Um, and so the, the quote that I have at the top here is from Charles Duhigg, and he said, a keystone habit is a pattern which has the power to start a chain reaction, changing other habits as it moves through your life. Um, and, and we've talked a lot about that over the years with, with in sessions, just saying to people, experiment. It could be sleep that you need to move on. It could be social contact at work. It could be friendships, whatever. Anyway, this is the nudge. I get, I get up early, usually around 6.30 and preferably pre-dawn. I do this even if I get to bed late the night before. If I don't do it, I don't feel like myself. This is my keystone habit. It's the thing that makes everything else fall into place. 
I start my day early and in a quiet, calm fashion, and I either walk the dog or go for a run before the city chaos begins. It also means that, because I'm tired sooner that day, I get to bed early too. Thanks to the fact that I'm calm and exercise, I make better eating choices also. What's the one thing you need that makes everything else fall into place? Over the years, I've talked to people who I've identified big areas like sleep, exercise, meditation and eating, and more specific things like a family dinner or making the bed. Have you found your keystone habit this month? If so, write it below. If not, keep searching. That's a, so that's actually quite a long one. Others can just yeah. be much shorter. But the key is that I just, not always a personal example, but I often I share, I'm kind of vulnerable in the book. I share a lot of personal stories, things that I failed at, um, fears that I have. Other times it's other cases that we preface the nudge with. And then you, I always, I always try and mobilize someone uh, to action. So read it. What does that mean for you? Write something in the book, you know, scribble over the book, make it your own, disagree with it, fill in the table, whatever it is. Just get people to move towards action. Um, and other ones are like one question, and then, but write something down. What does this mean for you? You've read this, what are you going to do about it? That, and, and I think that's the key that, that I've tried to do for every day of the year. Right. Yeah, and I like that. And in that passage, you're not saying, you know, start waking up earlier you're saying like what what's your keystone habit what's going to have your life fall into place in a more powerful way health and well-being richard is is bedeviled by a a a really prescriptive preaching tone um but well-being is so complex it's so different for everyone you know what works for you is not going to work for another person so i've been very clear on that over the years that i don't have the answers I sometimes have my own answers, but what I'm going to bring to in my work and I'm going to bring to people is I'm going to prod them to just ask the questions. And, and, and that's what we need. We need to have that reflection. That's the important thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it just brings to mind one of the ones that my keystone that's come out is, is meditation. And I know you talk about that in the, in the Chief Wellbeing Officer, but it's, it's quiet time. But yeah, I found that developing a, a meditation habit twice daily now. And I've really stuck to it because I found a particular type of meditation, Vedic meditation that just I found really easy and, and comfortable and it requires almost no effort. Um, and that's just helped with my sleep and helped with my stress levels and like everything else. Like it was, it's, it's become a keystone. Like with that, everything else is all the other disciplines and habits become easier to maintain. Awesome. Uh, how long do you do that for, Richard? And, and 20, what time 20 minutes. Um, 20, 20 minutes yeah, in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. Um, yeah. Going back to, you know, I think going back to the keeping the bar really low, I just found a type, this is a, a style of meditation, which is, you know, you don't have to sit cross-legged. You, you purposely sit in a really comfortable chair. You don't have to like fixate stare at you know spot in space it's it's so easy you just chant this this mantra which is really kind of soothing and easy to do um and just the whole concept of it is it's ease it's ease it doesn't feel like it's like a a high bar to begin with um and when i was learning like the meditation system even if you sort of space out after 10 minutes whatever it doesn't matter like just rest for like the rest of the 20 minutes and then try again the next day and so the whole context in which i was learning it was was um was such that I was able to pick it up. And I've tried to develop a meditation habit for like 10 years prior to this, and this one's working. Um, but I think, yeah, having that, finding that keystone is really important. Like that, and it's that thing that makes everything else, but also having a really low bar. It's got to be like really easy and simple and uh, to get into the habit, right? And then you can build from there. Absolutely. Well done. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, and, and the other thing I just wanted to acknowledge in the book, I think that um, I think really makes a, made a difference for me was this idea that when we're talking about you've got this this sustaining executive performance and this this model, which I think is 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 really important, and I think is getting more recognition, and that it's not just about like how you think, it's not just about the strategies that you employ, it's yeah, it's really your, I guess your, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it comes back to it. Your wellness as a human being, like move, recover, focus, fuel, train, but, but it's taking in the whole person, 
right? And um, and I think that's somewhat novel when we when we're thinking about leadership development or executive performance. Is is this something you know you develop? Like, what's the origin of that model? Model. There's a couple of different elements, um, and and this goes back to when I when I started out. The, I was teaching at uh, the business school here in Barcelona, and one thing that I always remember saying. Um, was that I would see executives in their training programs, but even in the training programs or at the workplace, they would live their lives from the neck up. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, them to think about their whole body and their whole self, not just for their own health and well-being, but if you think about that holistic, in that, in that holistic way, it's going to improve things that you do from the neck up as well. Um, but there was two big influences for me. It was the work of Jim Lord and Tony Schwartz and the corporate athlete, which then came up, you know, it developed as peak performance industry, which is very useful. But I've also written in the last couple of years that peak performance, it can be taken too far because it can, always, it can also squeeze people. It can, it, it can lead to burnout um, and, and a lack of let's say the, the real kind of what's the raison d'etre behind the tools that you're using are you really looking at creating a positive culture and improving people's health and well-being or are you just trying to squeeze more out of them and make them a high performer if it's just a high performer then even though they're well-being tools then sooner or later that's gonna it's not gonna work out um so the peak performance and the corporate athlete work was there um, and in my own experiences in, in, in sport, which I believed in the power of that, even on a simple level, it was always amazing to me that um, if you were in the world of work and you had a very important presentation the next day, that people wouldn't necessarily think about going to bed early. Just simple as that, right? Mm. Whereas I grew up from a very early age um, and, and I knew that if I had a race at the weekend, I had to really think about my sleep in the couple of days leading up to that. And absolutely, the day before, the 24 hours before, hydration, rest, getting to bed early so that I could, you know, race well the next day. And I remember saying this at a conference once and they, think, they said to me, I never thought about that. Yeah, I had something important in the workplace the next morning. I never thought about the night before. And, 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 and then I started talking to other clients and, and I think it was Accenture at the time. And there was a saying, it said, a good day, in terms of a good day at work, starts the night before. So it was all this mindset that I had from my experience as an athlete that I thought could really fit. Corporate athlete stuff was there that helped me legitimize it. Just even the fact that that was published in Harvard Business Review, they were working with a lot of companies. And then there was other work at INSEAD Business School as well, from Juliet and Michael McGannon. Um, and, and Michael was also very um, uh, gracious. He wrote the foreword on the Sustaining Executive Performance book. And they worked with a lot of executives over the years in terms of improving their executive health. So those were all the kind of inspirations for me to get going in that, in that area of performance. And then that became well-being. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I'm just imagining, I mean, I never had a boss, let's say, when I was in that kind of corporate life who would ask me, like, like, how did you sleep last night? Like, or what's your nutrition like right now? Or, yeah. What's your, what's your training, right? Like, what, what's your physical training regime? What's it look like? Like, in any of my performance appraisals or any, it's just, just totally absent, right, from the whole conversation about performance. And I don't think it's changed that much. Like, it's obviously changing. You're having an impact. Others are having an impact. But it's, it's interesting, right, that, that that kind of whole human approach has still got a way to go until to becoming kind of corporate mainstream, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've still got a ways to go. Um... And look, maybe there is a reason that we shouldn't go all the way. Maybe there's a, an element of, of, of privacy there that people say, well, none of your business, right? If, maybe, mm. right? But, you know, I think there is more of an alignment and, and it comes down to the way that the world of work is changing. And if you think about psychological safety and belonging, you're, you're, you're aligning yourself, your home self and your work self do you want that to be the exact same? Maybe not. Maybe you keep something for yourself. And so I think it depends on the individual. I, you know, I, I think as long as maybe there is the conversation, I think that's a positive thing. And if the individual says, well, look, none of your business, <laughs> how I slept last night or 
if I'm training or not. You know, a lot of the well-being, the, the traditional approach to well-being, I think, Richard, or wellness, let's say, in, in organisations, if you looked at maybe um, kind of weight management programmes or smoking cessation, it kind of alienated the, the individual in many ways. And, and so you, you don't want to get to that level whereby it's kind of, well, I'm here to do a job. You know, if I want to eat junk food, then that's up to me. If I want to just be lazy on the sofa, then that's up to me. So again, I think it's maybe the tone that we can use. We can encourage people without preaching and just say, look, let's create an environment where we can fail, but where we can try and we can do it together. I think that's the key for moving forward. Yeah, and that's what I'm certainly getting from this part of the conversation is, and you're just touching it with a daily habit. It's like you you want to create the nudge, you want to make like the marker for the conversation, but you can't be too preachy because you'll push people the other way. So it's it's a it's a fine act. It's a kind of a, an, an, a part of the art of leadership, I suppose, in this area is treading that line. It's how do you get into a constructive dialogue in some of these areas without, yeah, people feeling alienated. And without it's feeling like it's a patrician, like, you know, kind of, yeah, style of uh, leadership, which also just might have the wrong tone. It's the coaching mindset, I think, as well, in terms of, you know, good practice to, to coaching. You know, maybe you as the leader or the senior person, you have the answer, but the value is not in the answer for the other person. The value is that they follow a process that they find the answer themselves, that they're empowered and it comes from them. It shouldn't come from the other party, right? And I think the same with discussing elements of well-being or happiness or whatever for, for an individual within an organization is that you allow them to go on that voyage of discovery and, and you want them to be curious into trying some of these things rather than saying you should. If it starts with you should, forget about it, right? They're going to run a mile. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just thinking that, that playing out in a situation, right? Like maybe somebody just doesn't do so well in on a presentation, and maybe the the leader say, "Hey, so why why do you think you didn't perform so well? You know, what what could it be that could have contributed? Maybe in the last 24 hours, right? It's like that gentle coaxing towards, you know, yeah, the answer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, great, good. Um, well, we've talked a lot about well being. We've talked about the the. The, the daily habit and the, it's that you uh, that you nudge people towards in the daily reset book is there, is there anything we've missed? Is there anything you'd have wanted to touch on? No, that's that's been fun. That's been a good conversation. I you know, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I what I've done for the past twenty years, I've just tried to make the case, and uh, and 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 I think we have an opportunity now. We're we're in this kind of period of flux of redesign. And, uh, and, and, and I think we, we should just try a lot of these things out more, right? And, and I see some encouraging signs, but what we don't need is, you know, as, as, as we've all experienced during the pandemic is, you know, back-to-back virtual meetings and a, a further blurring of home and, and work life that, that means that people are more under pressure than, than ever, right? And mental health being, being, being very much um, an issue for many people. I think the other thing, Maybe just as a, and I've touched on it as we've gone through, with just my background as a designer. So we're both engineers, as I understand, Richard. Right? Oh, yeah, I yeah, think that's my background as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and engineering for me has been a great way of looking at a problem and breaking it down, and but in a very human fashion. But my specialization in engineering was design. So design thinking for me was a way of understanding basic human needs and trying to address those within the workplace. And that's been hugely valuable for me over the years, whether you take a, a, a human um, uh, you know, first approach or you look at the importance of empathy. You know, some of the work that we've done with leadership skills training is looking at things that you learn from design, like iteration and empathy, and you bring it into leadership practice. And then the other thing that also we, we have touched on also is, is experimentation. And that very iterative approach to a problem, it's not just about getting it right first time, but you try something out on a small scale, you pile it, if it doesn't work, you move on, you try something else. So for me, um, that background as a, as a design thinker has been hugely important in this, uh, in this career of, of looking at well-being. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really important point. Um, 
Oh yeah, so and I and I reflect on my own well-being. It's been a constant iteration of experiments, right? Different, different coaching styles, different types of therapy, different physical, you know, different yoga class. Like I'm, I'm like I've always had that mindset of like, okay, can I try and then trust my own intuition, my own body? Is, is this the right thing? Is it that I should go towards? Right? That's um, yeah, that's a really important point. That like don't reach for like the blueprint. Like just keep experimenting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. Great. Well, thank you so much. We'll put we'll put the link to uh, the links to all three books. Um, and uh, God, I don't know how you do it. You must have some good disciplines to keep churning them out. That's uh, very impressive. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, Sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep yeah. trying. That's the main thing. Um, yeah, thank you for the time. We'll put the link anywhere else. You so you've got the podcast. We'll we'll link to the to the podcast but just for people who are listening where where can they find that um you know the the, the podcast is called chief Wellbeing officer and that's in all major platforms yeah. so you know spotify and and apple and all these all these areas and uh yeah yeah the, the website of the book the daily reset is daily reset.me daily reset right. altogether.me and uh yeah everything's on there all the links and all the all the different things yeah Right. And anything coming up you want to tease? Um, not really. No, you know I'm taking a bit of a taking stock a little bit just now, and 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 hopefully there'll be news on the next chapter and and what that's going to look like later in the year. But um, yeah, just just very grateful. And um, I, I wrote about even my vacation last week uh, on my on my blog, and just. The, the the luxury of taking that time out, right? So I'm just very grateful for, yeah, everything that's going on just now, especially with the way the world is, and uh, and hopefully, you know, more more work in the space of the daily reset, and later towards the summer, something something new that's been bubbling away, but not quite ready to announce that yet. <laughs> Good. Well, I look forward to uh, to, to that when it comes. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. And, uh, and thanks again to Cave Out if you're listening uh, for making the connection. I uh, really yeah. enjoyed this. Thanks, Stephen. Thank Enjoy you, the Richard. rest of uh, yeah. the day with your, with your son. Yes, yes. But no, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for your time and the opportunity to appear on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Cheers. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.